Hello and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is episode 2J, Poets and Archers, part 2. This episode we're going to take a second look at the Chera kings of South India. We're going to be following straight on, in fact, from the last episode, except that in the last episode we looked at the Cheran history from the inside, the view from the Cheran court, and in this episode we'll be getting the view from the other side, taking a look at the Chera from the outside. That wasn't very clear, so let me explain. Ancient South India is an oddity in political terms. If you think of the rule of Alexander the Great, that lasted about a decade. If you think of the rule of the Qin dynasty in China, that's 50 years. Even the rule of the great northern Indian emperors, the Mauryans, they were only about 130 years. If you're trying to think of political dynasties that lasted a long time, you normally think of the Roman Empire. I think of that as the most stable empire in history most of the time. It lasted about 1,500 years. But all of those are blown clear out of the water by the kingdoms of South India, the three crown kings of South India. The Jola kings with their tiger symbol, the Pandyan kings with their fish symbol, we've met those in earlier episodes, and the Cheran kings, which we met in the last episode, and we're going to be talking about in this episode, and they have the symbol of the archer. Now the Cheras are often found messing around with the other crown kings. At one point the Cheras conspire to kill nine Chola kings to help get the one that they liked on the throne. But between them, these three kings, uh, these three kingdoms, split up South India. And that starts well back, before in fact history began. You had the three crown kings ruling South India. And it carries on through history for two millennia. Two millennia later, around uh, 1200, the three crown kings are still there, still carving up South India between them. But they weren't the only rulers in South India. There were other kings too, beside the crown kings. In fact, we call these other kings kings, but it's probably better to call them chieftains, because they ruled smaller territories. They were tucked in between the lands of the three crown kings. Sometimes they were under the thumb of one of the crown kings, they were vassals, and sometimes they were independent. And these were called the Velir. They were a people said to have emerged from the sacrificial fire pits into the earth, and their reputation was as fierce warriors. And since we've been badly ignoring them in our South Indian episodes, we're going to tell the rest of the story of the ancient Cheras through the stories of these chieftains and the poets in their service. We'll start our story with a small tribe called the Malyamans. They had their capital city right next to the great river that runs through Chola country. But in fact, the capital wasn't the beating heart of that little kingdom. The beating heart of the kingdom was up on a nearby mountain plateau called the Mullah. And the mountain plateau is still there. And you can see if you go there, at a glance, this is an easy place to defend. The slopes are steep and they're thick with woodland, almost an impenetrable carpet of woodland it seems. Except that here and there, there's no woods at all, and the bare rock shoots right up because it's too steep to hold any plants. Up on the mountain plateau itself, there are waterfalls and folds in the rock. 
There's plenty of water there for thirsty armies, and the ground up there is actually very fertile. It can provide quite a bit of food for armies too. So this is a very good place indeed for a chieftain who wants to hole up and defend himself. The chieftain of the Maliamans was a man called Kari. And once Kari had done exactly that, an army had come from northern India and he'd taken his army up the slopes of his mountain and there he'd held out against them and beaten them. Kari's mountain had been tried and tested and it seemed to be impenetrable. Kari is an interesting sort of chap. He's deeply devoted to Brahminical orthodoxy. In fact, so devoted that he gave away almost all of that mountain plateau. He gave them to uh, Brahmins, and so the mountain plateau was called, was said to be crowned with Aryas. And we know one of those Brahmins that he sponsored really rather intimately, because he was one of the great poets, and his poems have come down to us. His name was Kapila, and it was one of his poems actually that we finished the last episode with, so we've already met him. He came to Carrie's court and he sung poems for him. And the poems are so rich with praise that another poet came and said, look, there's nothing else for any poet to say. Kapilar's already said it all. You don't need poets to come here. And in return, from all these kind words from all these poets, Chieftain Kari was very generous. It's said that he beat enemy elephants and he took the gold that had been decorating their head and had it melted down. And then he had the resulting gold beaten into little lotus flowers. And he gave this, gave these lotus flowers as gifts to his bards. And this sort of generosity earned him a place on the top seven patrons of all time list of South Indian poets or patrons. And you would have thought that all this generosity to poets would have really pleased his greatest poet, Kapila. After all, Kapilar and his colleagues were getting extremely rich off of Chieftain Curry. But actually, all of that generosity that Curry gave out, that seems to have ticked off Kapilar quite a bit. In a sly poem, Kapilar chastises Curry for treating all bards indiscriminately well. He says, It's easy to give abundantly. It's difficult to know who the deserving ones are. Greatly charitable Lord, since you understand, avoid judging all poets the same. Curry maybe was being a bit indiscriminately generous, but perhaps he thought he could just be afford to be so generous because pretty much everyone in the world seemed to want to be his friend. Even the great crown kings of southern India sent emissaries to gain his favour, people to come up to his mountain and say, hey, we'd like to be your friend. And I imagine all of that friendly atmosphere he was getting from them had something to do with that great impossible-to-conquer mountain plateau. Kari, though, had a strange and increasingly strained relationship with those three crown kings. When Kari had first become chieftain, he was just a vassal of the Cholas. The Cholas were the, the local crown king. They were the big kingdom that actually surrounded his lands entirely. But merely the fact that he was a vassal of the Cholas wasn't going to affect how Kari acted much. He wasn't that sort of chap. Sure, the Cholas had their great armies, he would have thought to himself, but I've got my invincible mountain. And little by little, Curry started to throw his weight around. He started out by doing a little bit of cattle rustling, sneaking around at night, finding a few cows, and then making off back home with them. And from there, it escalated. 
he started a war with another small kingdom. The other kingdom was a little bit to the south of him, just a day's march south in the Coley Hills. And it was led by an old man who'd once been a great warrior. So one day, Carry marched his men up into the Coley Hills. He found the old warrior and he killed him. And then he carried on, marching along the road into the old warrior's town. Now this battle might have been a pretty small affair. Two minor armies clashing in the hills, maybe not more than a hundred or so people. But it wasn't really the fighting that caused the trouble. What caused the trouble was what Curry did next. He'd conquered this town, but he didn't keep it. He gave it away. And the logical thing to do, you'd have thought, would be to give it to the Cholas. The Cholas, remember, were that huge kingdom that surrounded his own lands, and they were the kings who were his boss. He was their vassal. But Carrie wasn't about to be swayed by the logical thing. He gave the kingdom away to the rivals of the Cholas, the Cheras, the archer kings of this episode. And you'd imagine that just didn't make Carrie very popular with his Cholan overlords at all. He's supposed to be on their side. But Carrie doesn't seem to have taken any notice of what the Cholans would have thought of anything, because he was about to be even more provocative. Curry asserted that he was king in his own right. He was independent. He was no longer under the thumb of the Cholas. And he even started to go around calling himself a crowned king. Now that was just one step too far. The Cholas were not going to tolerate it. And they promptly invaded with their army. They took it up to the base of Curry's supposedly invincible mountain. And they showed that it wasn't quite as invincible as anyone thought. Sure, it might have been impossible for a small king to conquer the mountain, but the Cholas were a different matter. They had enough men to surround the mountain plateau entirely. Curry had been too cocky. He'd felt too safe. He'd stirred up forces that he couldn't control. And the Cholan army marched right in and killed Curry, and then killed all of his family. Actually, they didn't quite kill all of his family. That mountain plateau, as I said, has got many creases and folds. It's got lots of good places to hide. And one of Curry's sons ran away and hid himself away somewhere up there, in some little nook in the mountain. And that was good news, not just for the house of Curry, but also for the Cholas themselves. Because what goes around comes around, as the old saying goes. And the old saying held true for the Cholas. Because pretty soon, someone else had raised a big army and attacked the Cholas and the Cholan king had to run for his own life. But where would he run to? He needed somewhere to hide out, somewhere to regroup, somewhere to gather his men together again. It needed to be defensible. Steep slopes would be a good thing. But you also needed to have enough waterfalls, enough food to keep his men watered and fed. And the place to go to get all of these things, of course, was Curry's Mountain. Curry was dead. But the son who had hidden himself away from the Cholas was still up there. And showing what must have been either incredible political good sense or a remarkable strength of forgiveness, the son took the fleeing Chola king in and he hid him in the mountain. Doubtless, that son knew a good hiding spot or two. And the Chola king survived and he rebuilt his army and he regained his throne. And when the Chola was back on his throne, he gave Kari's son a position of prominence and prestige as chief minister of his father's killers. We've just had the story of Curry and his invincible mountain. And now we've got a story of a chieftain who sounds a lot like Curry. 
And I mean literally, because his name is Puri. And it's not just the name that's similar. They're similar in other ways too. Just like Curry, Puri ruled from a mountain. And just like Curry, Puri was embedded in Jolan lands. He was actually on the other side of that great river that runs through Jolan territory. But Puri's mountain was much smaller. It wasn't a huge mountain plateau like Curry's was with a complex of hills and slopes. Puri's hill was really just one tall hill. It's a small thing. In many ways, though, that made it a better fortress. The hill starts with a mound. And from the mound, a cube of block rises up. Its sides are only about 50 metres to 100 metres tall, but the sides are vertical and almost completely impassable. And even better, although the top is not so big, up there, there's still some things to eat and drink. There's jackfruit. There are some edible roots. There are bees up there, so there's honey. And there's something called bamboo seed, though I haven't been able to work out what that is exactly. And sure, there weren't any waterfalls up there, not, nothing like there was up on Carrie's lands. But there was a spring, just enough to keep Puri's men from drying out in a siege. So that was Puri's fortress, and it was a good fortress. And from there, he ruled 300 villages that surrounded it. Puri himself was an interesting character. He's a bit of a reckless adventurer, but with a ton of charm. You know the type, look before you leap, gets into trouble, but somehow always manages to keep a smile and a bright sense of the future. One of his poets sung about how up on that mountain home, clear toddy was poured to fill the bowls of bards and overflowed and moved pebbles in the mountain. And he sings of King Parry as the sweet man who was ferocious to kings who commanded many spears and mighty elephants. The poet who sang those words was someone we've already met, the great poet Capelar. Capelar's already floated into our story a couple of times. Back at the end of the last episode, he popped up praising the Jeren king. And in this episode, he popped up in Curry's Mountain. He was the one who complained that the other bards were getting paid too much. Well, he's popped up again here, this time at Puri's court up on that small hill. And the great poet Kapilar seems to have sincerely loved Puri. He wrote that Puri was so generous that he once gave a chariot to a flower. Giving a chariot seems to be pretty much the most useless gift you can give anything that's literally rooted to the spot, but perhaps that was the point. Parry was exceedingly generous, not only to Capilar, but also to many other poets. He was on that seven best patrons of all time list. I'm being a bit silly with the seven best patrons thing, but there really was such a list of seven great patrons in ancient South India, and his name is on the list. Parry, the chieftain of the minstrels. So Parry was an adventurer and a bit reckless, but with a nice smile. And perhaps because he was a bit reckless, he decided one day to declare independence. I'm not going to be ruled by any of the three crown kings, he said. And then he tried to reassure the crown kings. He said, look, I don't want to become a crown king myself. I just want a little bit of independence. Just want to be left alone up on my little hill. Well, the message did not get across to the three crown kings. They didn't want to have any upstarts, anyone trying to declare independence. So they did what they rarely did before. They joined together, all three of them, summoning their armies and leading them to the base of his hill. 
and there they put Puri to siege. Now remember, Puri's hill was really quite small. There was some food up there, but there wasn't enough up there to keep an army fed indefinitely. So the siege should have worked. But the great poet Kapilar came to the rescue. He had an idea. He got some parrots and he trained them to fly out over the enemy army spread out beneath the hill, over that and down to pick up some corn, and then fly back to the hill with it. The crown kings below were presumably furious. There's not so much you can do to stop parrots whizzing over you and feeding your enemy. The crown kings decided that it was time for battle. Then Kapilar tried to step in again to save his friend. He went down the hill, he found the crown kings and he sang to them. He tried to warn them off the hill. He wasn't really pleading with them to leave his friend alone. He was really just warning the kings off the attack. Kapilar said, look, the steep slope is so steep, you'll never capture it. He said, it doesn't matter how many elephants or chariots you have, they're completely useless here. There's only one way you're going to get to the top of that hill, and that's if you disband your armies, become a minstrel, and go up the slope singing and dancing, and then you'll be welcomed with open arms. So Kapilar sang that song to them. He gave them the message not once, but twice, and twice they refused to listen. A little while later, it wasn't the song of poets that was ringing through the camp. It was the thunder of war drums. The armies of the crown kings picked up their weapons and surged up the slope. But Parry himself was there, along with his men, at the top of the slope, spear whirling in his hand. He was vastly outnumbered, but the poet Capilar was right. None of the elephants or the chariots mattered up on that slope and Parry was able to beat back the great forces of his enemies. But the crown kings and their armies weren't finished. They came back again, in the night, lit by a white moon. By some crafty trick, apparently, we don't know what it was, they got their armies up to the top of that hill. Parry was caught off guard. He lost his hill, and he lost his life. And not only his life, but all of his family, all of them, were killed. Well, not quite all of his family. Two of his daughters remained alive, and they wrote a poem about it that we still have today. Last month, under that white moon, we had our father, and nobody had seized our mountain. They took our mountain. We don't have our father. The great poet Kapilar also survived the attack, and he mourned his friend's loss in a beautiful poem. Great wealth was bestowed according to the desires of the receivers, and you made friends with us. Now Parry is dead, we are confused and helpless. It's perhaps a sign of the poet's genuine devotion to Parry that he looked after the two daughters who were left. He took care of them. He treated them as his own daughters, which for that place and time meant that he had responsibility to find them good husbands. Now it's said that the two daughters were beautiful women, had thick dark hair, but looks aren't everything. And when you think about the whole package, the marriage proposal, getting married to one of these daughters, can't have been that attractive an offer. The daughters of Pari were royals, so the marriage proposal should be sent to kings or princes. But the daughters now had no living family. So if the kings and princes accepted, they weren't going to get any useful alliances out of their marriage. And even worse than that, 
Any king or prince who married the daughters would be annoying the three crown kings. They'd be tying themselves to the house of Pari, the man who fought back and embarrassed the three crown kings of Tamalakum. But Kapilar had vowed to look after the daughters. So he went about the tricky task of finding someone for them to marry. Twice the poet took them up to the court of a chieftain, And twice he sung poems about them and their father, how their father was such a great man, a kind man, ferocious to kings even who were much more powerful than him. And to put the cherry on the cake, the poet also praised the chieftains themselves, the ones who were receiving the marriage proposal, in the finest words he knew. But the trick didn't work. But it didn't work. Twice Capilar's marriage proposal was turned down, and Capilar left the court of the second chieftain, despairing, with one last regretful poem, saying he was sorry to even have mentioned the daughters to that king. Kapilar was running out of options quickly, and so he gave the daughters as wives to some Brahmins. And after he'd done that, according to one poem, he starved himself to death, still mourning his friend Pari. According to another story, this one from a late Jolin inscription, Kapilar went to a stone in a river, and there he stepped into a fire his body consumed. The stone's still there, actually, in the riverbed. It's a really rather odd-looking thing. I guess the stones of that part of India are really amazingly beautiful. But this one's nothing much more than a boulder, with a curious curving shape and stairs that lead up to a temple on the top. But actually, both of those stories of Kapilar's demise seem to be greatly exaggerated. Because the poet Kapilar appeared again. He came to the court of the Cheren king, This Cheren king was none of the kings we've already talked about, either in this episode or the last episode. This was a Cheren king from another dynasty. Probably he was somehow related to the kings of the last episode. We don't exactly know how. I mean, maybe he even ruled the Cheren lands at exactly the same time as them, a different branch of the same ruling family. This king's father, the founder of the dynasty, or at least the earliest one we know about, he was a scholarly man, and a man with a good heart, and very restrained. It's said that he had very intelligent wives too. And his son, the one who Kapilar came to know, he had something of that goodness of heart in him too, that gentility. The poet Kapilar came to the Jeren king's court, and he sung to the king, but it wasn't a song of a sycophant. It was a song about his dead friend and his dead friend's people. He said, Paris citizens are in need and in sorrow. I've not come to you for charity. I will not exaggerate and sing about you. He does not feel sorry for what he gave. He does not gloat about what he has given. He donates generously. Those are the words that are spoken about you. I came here after I heard of your good fame. Kapilar was pleading for help for Paris people now that Paris was dead. And it seems like the Cheren king was generous and he helped the people because soon enough Kapilar was singing the praise of the Cheren king. And interestingly, the praises he sang for the Cheren king are really quite different, I think, to the praises he sung for for Pari. Pari comes off the page bounding with enthusiasm. The Cholin king, from the same poet's poems, he sounds a lot less fun, although maybe he's more of a good man. There's a lot of talk of sacrifices and gifts to Brahmins. And, in fact, it's said that the palace ground became muddy with all the water used in the rituals. 
But the Cherin King wasn't just about rituals. He also had a sort of magnetic goodness about him. So much so, said Capillar, that soldiers switched sides to join the Cherins just because they loved the king's principles. This Cherin King wasn't just Pari reborn. He was a different sort of character altogether, and Capillar recognised this and put it into his poems. But despite the differences, Capillar seems to have fallen in love with the Cherin King just as he had loved his friend Pari. Looking over this dynasty of Cholin kings were kind of meeting from the outside. The first was a bookish man with a kind heart. Actually, we met him last episode. The poem we started the last episode with, the one that started on the shore and the king in a pavilion looking at a girl, that was the first of our Cholin kings. The second king, he was the friend of Capillar, the one who won the despairing poet over. But the third king, the son of Capillar's friend, he seems like a different sort of fellow, less of the kindness of his father and his grandfather. He also had dealings with the Velia, the chieftains, but they're altogether less friendly than his father's dealings. The story starts with another of the seven great patrons of the bards. We've already mentioned two of them, of course, Kari and Pari. This one was called Anji. Actually had a lot of other names. His name's not terribly important, and we've already had too many names, so let's just call this chap the Chieftain. The Chieftain was from a fine family, and the family did the world this huge service by introducing sugarcane. The Chieftain wasn't really politically very powerful, but he did love poetry, and the poets loved him. And amongst all his poets, the most famous was a woman called Alvaya. Avaya can rightly take her place alongside the other great poets of the Sangam era, right there next to Capillar. Perhaps she was just a notch above most of them in a way. By the way, the legacy of her poems are still around in modern India. In later centuries, there were other poets who were named after her, and those poets wrote children's books. So children in South India will often grow up hearing the name of Avaya as the author of one of the very first stories that they learn. The oldest Arvaya, the one we're talking about here, she didn't write children's stories. She was a professional court poet. And she lived the professional life. She took her family travelling around from chieftain to king. We still have the odd poem about this minor chieftain or that king that she wrote. The life can't have been a very good one for her and her family. Actually, alvaya has got a slightly surprising relationship with her family. Uh, in one of her poems, she sings about how she's kind of sad that her son hasn't died a hero's death. And in another, she sings about how great it is for mothers when their warriors die, their warrior sons die. That, I presume, must have made it slightly unnerving to be Alvaya's son. Although, I guess it's no different to how Spartan women were said to be. You know, go away and come back uh, with your shield or on it. And in any case, this might not have been a poem that she sincerely meant. It might not have been sung in her own voice, so to speak. We don't really know. Anyway, Alvaya was travelling around the country with her family, and they were not really getting on with that lifestyle. They came at last to the court of the chieftain. And there, they were taken in and looked after. Actually, the relationship didn't go so well at first. Alvaya and the chieftain didn't really get on. The poet complained that the chieftain hadn't given her any gifts. 
which I suppose for a court poet is a little bit like not being paid by your boss. Except that, being a poet, you can write a wickedly stinging poem about it. And that is exactly what Avaya did. Pretty soon after she wrote and delivered the stinging poem, the present started flowing, including such majestic things as a fruit which could hold off old age, which was nice, and soon after that, the poet and the patron were getting along splendidly. Now, the chieftain was a young man at that time. He was young enough to be thought vulnerable by the surrounding chieftains, but Alvaya nevertheless started to think of the chieftain as very much like a father. And the poems that she writes for him are almost alarmingly intimate. Here's my favourite one. A little son's babbling words are no much for Jarl music. Their tenses do not match and they cannot be understood, yet they are graceful to the father. O Neduman Anji, the words out of my mouth are just like that because of your graces. And elsewhere, she sings about how, although the chieftain is terrible to his enemies, she finds him very sweet. And how the chieftain's been crafted as if by an expert craftsman taking his time. But judging from Alvaya's poems, the chieftain seems to have been always up for a good time. Always quick to hand people a nice, strong drink. In fact, strong drink in celebration comes up all over the poems. King of the Atians, you who give excitement causing alcohol, he's called. Pretty soon, Avaya becomes almost part of the chieftain's family. She writes a poem for his son, for example, about how jolly handsome he is and how all the women love him and all the men hate him and are jealous. One day, a Jolan king came to ruin this settled, happy court life. And this Cheren king was, of course, the third in our dynasty, the son of the friend of Kapalan. I'm sorry about these long-winded references, by the way. I'm trying to talk about all of these different kings without this episode just descending into a list of names. Anyway, this Cheren king came to conquer the land of the chieftain. And the chieftain had no chance. He was a great patron of the arts to rival any other, but he had no army to rival the army of the Jeras. Unfortunately, though, he knew who did. The chieftain appealed to the other two crown kings of South India to protect him, and the other kings sent armies. Both the Cholas and the Pandyas sent armies to defend the chieftain. But it wasn't enough. The armies they sent must have been small. They certainly weren't big enough to defeat the Cheras because the chieftain fell. The chieftain's life wasn't over, though. Not yet. The Cheran king had captured him and he allowed him to live. He even allowed him to keep his lands, albeit not as an independent chieftain, but merely as a vassal. And the thing about being a vassal of a great king is you've got to follow their orders. Pretty soon, the Cheran king ordered the chieftain to attack a rebel. The chieftain summoned his army and he went out to attack. The chieftain, as you can tell by now, really wasn't a great fighter. And this once again was a disaster. He lost. But worse this time, both the chieftain and his general were killed. Now his poet, Uvaya, she had stayed back home. And when news came to her of her friend's death, she mourned. Let his body advance to the bright cremation fire, 
piled up with wood singed with black tips, like those mountain dwellers cut on the burned fields. If the flame doesn't wish to do that, let it rise on its own and touch the sky. He was like the glowing sun, his white umbrella like the moon with cool rays. His fame will never die. She sung another song, remembering the good times, this one. If he had a little toddy, he would give it to us. Not any longer. If he had abundant toddy, he would give it to us and happily drink the leftovers as we sang to him. Not any longer. If he had a little rice, he would set it on many dishes. Not any longer. And she sung another poem, the most heart-wrenching yet. Let there be no mornings and no evenings. Let it be meaningless, these days that I will live. Now, usually we end episodes by having a little bit of the primary sources. We've already done plenty of that, though, in this episode, reading all of those poems, and also in the last episode. The poems, by the way, I've mostly adapted them from translations which are available online by Vahidehi. The, the, the website is sangamtranslationsbyvahidehi.com. I'll put it up on the website. It's absolutely fantastic. Most of the poems, as I've read them, have been mutilated and they've been put in a different context. I really encourage you to go and read the originals. There's just nothing like this elsewhere in ancient history. Anyway, rather than ending by having a few more poems, I thought we'd end this episode by having a little bit of a silliness and a little bit of humiliation of me. So we're going to have another game between me and my friends where I'm trying to pronounce North Indian words and they're trying to get the correct answer to Indian history questions. Now, this is just a casual conversation between friends after dinner. If you don't enjoy that sort of thing, then turn off the episode now. On the other hand, if you don't mind listening to a bit of silly chatter, listen on. Okay, welcome back. So, my pronunciation of South Indian words has been put to the test and found very much wanting. This week we're going to test my pronunciation of North Indian words, and I hope I do an awful lot better. Um, it would be rather embarrassing if I didn't, but then I'm quite used to embarrassment, so we'll see what would happen. And to test my pronunciation of North Indian words, I've got my good friend Divya. Hello Divya. Hi, how are you, kid? I'm getting by, thanks. Yourself? Good, not bad. Welcome to the podcast. Um, so tell me, um, where are you from? I'm from North India, as north as you can go, from a place called Himachal Pradesh. Hima where in Himachal? Kulu, to be specific. Beautiful valley. Cool. And how's your, um, how's your pronunciation of North Indian words? Mm, I think it is quite decent. Okay, you think it's better than mine? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm on your podcast, so I'm supposed to be polite to you. <laughs> So what you're saying is mine's awful and yours is quite good. That's that's probably true. Okay, let's find out. So here's the game. I'm going to say, oh, pr try to pronounce uh, a North Indian noun. You're going to tell me if I pronounced it correctly or not. Okay. Okay, and then after I've been embarrassed by getting the pronunciation wrong, yeah. I'm going to ask you a history question. <gasps> I get a point for pronouncing the word correctly, if I do, and you get a point 
if you answer the history question correctly. But I'm not too good at history, Kit. Well, what do we do about that? I mean, that's rather the point. So I don't look. So I don't look absolutely terrible. The first word I'm going to pronounce. I'm now putting up on the computer screen. I'm going to say it's partly putra. It's partly putra. Partly putra. Uh, I'm looking Partly. to the I'm looking to the adjudicator because I think I pronounced that correctly. Yeah, you did. The point is that um, you would add an extra a sound at the end. Devya would not, but it's basically you pronounce everything else correct. So yeah, we are going to let that pass. So it was a bit mumbled in the background, but basically what it said is I'm brilliant, Divya's terrible, <laughs> and I get the point. Is that right? <laughs> Both of you are okay. <laughs> the only difference is that you said partly putra, while Divya said partly putra, and the difference is again of the sort of Krishna and Krishna. So I'm going to let it slide. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the the judge. Good kid. The one's the better one. <laughs> the judge has lost his temper. <laughs> okay, good. Okay, so um, here is a history question. Can you name a Gupta emperor? Chandragupta Maurya. Unfortunately, Chandragupta Maurya is a oh, Mauryan emperor. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, no, so, no. Yeah, <laughs> no it's too late. I've got to be. I've got to be ahead at some point. It's too late. Chandragupta would have been acceptable. Chandragupta Maurya, completely wrong. Different people, rather annoyingly. Oh yes, yes. I jumped on it too quickly. I got too excited, Kit. Let's choose. So it's now my turn. I have to pronounce this word, and I'm going to pronounce it, Magda. It's again the same thing. I'm going to pronounce it as Magad. Yeah, but still, Kit was a bit wrong. It's not Magda, it's Magad or Magda. Magda. Yeah. I didn't aspirate Ooh. the duh enough, apparently. One laugh, Kit. <laughs> no, 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 that's one, that's one point to nil still. Uh, no. You, <laughs> yeah, you can't. because you didn't answer the history question correctly, yeah. but he did answer the first pronunciation I'm correctly. I'm so Sorry. glad we've got an adjudicator. Can I also say, I'm so glad that I've got the adjudicator as Divya's husband, because he's clearly on my side. It's excellent. <laughs> okay, so can you name any of the groups of people who came from outside India but ruled within India? Uh, yeah, the... The, just, just so you know, um, yeah, but... the, the, the umpire is now whispering in Divya's ear. <laughs> no, I, I just want to be sure now before I go on air. Yeah, okay, go for it. Like any foreign ruler. Any foreign ruler. This is a softball question. Uh, the, the Mughals. Okay, the Mughals. Absolutely. One uh, point yeah, I'm like double checking, even if it's like very basic, <laughs> because I just, just jumped to, be... to the previous one. So this is my next word. Uh, I'm going to pronounce it Ujjain. Ujjain. That's for the first time you're correct. <laughs> <laughs> No, he was correct for the first word. That was partly putra, partly putra. Yeah, but like, we're on the same page for the first time. Okay, we're on the same page. So uh, that, that's two points. That's two points. Yeah. Okay. So two points to one point. So this is to draw draw level again. Um, now I have to think up a question. Let me grab my, my Indian history book. Oh, no. That can't be good. <laughs> you need um, to ask me easy stuff, Kit. Um, can, you, can you name... This is going to be a bad one if you can't get it. Okay. Can you name the four Vedas? Ah, yeah. Rig Veda, 
Yajurveda, Atharveda, Ayurveda. In order. Brilliant. Well done. No? 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 Uh, oh, the umpire. The umpire. Rig, Yajur, Atharv, Samveda. Good. I'm sorry, Samveda. Yeah. Ayurveda. I wasn't even paying attention to the answer. Whoa! <laughs> um, so, umpire, should I accept her first answer or her second answer? Well, um, to be fair. Second. Well, don't be fair. Just accept a second answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so that's what two point is that three points each? Yes. It's uh, two points. It's two points. Two, two points, points each. Two points each. Okay, so we've got my next word up on the computer screen, and I'm going to pronounce it Jen. Uh, could you repeat it? <laughs> I'd rather just not. Double sure. Jen. 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 I think that's <laughs> that, a, that's yeah. a that's a point yeah. for sure, isn't it? Because a lot of people mispronounce it as Jane for mm. some reason. Yeah. So I thought you would go for that. I was hoping you would go for that. Yeah, I was I was watching it. It's like people <laughs> say um, Sikh when they should say Sikh. So, yeah. Also, people say uh, sh- people say Shiva now. I've heard. Yeah, that's, that's, that's that, I think thing, that's a hipstery it? thing to do. Oh, hipster. Yeah. So I'm just not cool enough to say Shiva. Yeah. Okay. You're not cool enough. One day I'll be cool enough. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I need to find a history question, and the question is going to be... Easy one, easy one. An easy question. Who or what is a mletcher? Is? A mletcher. Who or what is a mletcher? Can you spell it? Uh, in English or Devnagri? In English. Oh, yeah, M- Devnagri, right? Yeah. <laughs> in okay, it's, it's M for Mike, L for Lima, E for Echo, C for Charlie, C for Charlie, H for Hotel, A for Alpha, S for Sierra. Uh, like that. This is some kind of a tool. Um, am I on the right path? No, no one here, no one here. But carry on. <laughs> okay, I thought it was some kind of a flint kind of tool. So um, a mletcher is a is a is a barbarian or a foreigner. <laughs> it's like Videshi but but ruder. Okay. Um, it's not really like Videshi, but it's like it's barbarian. Is basically, what it is. Okay, oh, no, cool. That was not easy. <laughs> it sounded like a tool, though. To be fair, it did. It did like, sound like a tool. Yeah, it does sound like a tool. Like so a mletcher. So some like, people you think know, something you do. do. <laughs> something you do what? Something to cut out the like the crops with mletcher. That's mletch. Oh, because you're like you're you're slicing it, mletch, <laughs> mletch, like that. Yeah, yeah. So actually, the word's supposed to come from the sound that that barbarians and foreigners make. Okay. Their, their language is like mletch, mletch, mletch. If you're a Sanskrit speaker or a Prakrit speaker, you can't can't make sense of it. So our our honourable but quite quiet umpire has given us the next word for me to pronounce, and it's I'm going to pronounce it. Sanchi stupa. Sanchi stupa. Sanchi stupa. I put less on the n, you see, because it's a uh, it's an, it's a it's a nasalized n. It's not not spelt with a with a. No. Uh, so I'll give uh, Kit San- half a point. Uh, half a point for pronouncing pronouncing Sanchi correct. Sanchi was correct. Stupa Stup- wasn't. You went stupa. What did I say? Stupa. What should I say? Stupa. So I, I said stupa, but I should have said stupa. <laughs> 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 this is this is what's being mumbled in the background. It's, it's a, soft, a soft T sound. Oh, oh, the, is it? The, not oh, the. it's stupa. Stupa. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah. Oh, crumbs. I've been mispronouncing that my entire life. 
So it's That's not rather embarrassing. Duh, it's duh. Well, now you know, and knowing is half the battle. <laughs> <laughs> knowing is half the battle. What's the other half? <laughs> using it correct. Okay, <laughs> using it correct. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, let's let's finish on a comic one. Um. <laughs> so I'm going to pronounce this word. This is a word which you've annoyingly started to call. Oh, so now you've given up on me. You're not going to ask me a history question. Oh, I owe you a history question still. Yes. I'm so sorry. Like, okay, I'm bad at it, but <laughs> you can't just stop the questions. It's a game. Okay, okay. Here's a question I asked to show when I, we were doing the same thing with South Indian words. Can you name a single Rajput prince or king? Rajput prince or king? Uh, Rajput. Yeah, yeah, I can. Let me just... <laughs> let me just revisit my history in my head. No use of the internet or mobile phones. Oh. Um, she's now signalling for her husband <laughs> to give her the answer. Some latent this, cheating this going is on. Embarrassing! I don't know how you got me to do this. <laughs> and why did I even ask for the history question? Because it's just being passed. Uh, is that this a pass? Like... I'm going to take a pass for that. <laughs> I just don't want to embarrass with an answer. I is your grandmother? It's... Is your grandmother Rajput? No. Okay, so you're you're much better off than my last <laughs> guest, whose grandmother was Rajput and still couldn't answer this question. So you you, you can it's feel like... you can feel cocky about that. So here's the last. This is something you've um. It's a word you've annoyingly started to call me, um, just to annoy me, as far as I can tell. Uh, and I'm starting to call you Maharani, which is much more suitable. So this, I'm going to pronounce this word, Saheb. 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 Is that a point? Yeah. That's a point. So that's three. So actually, you can't win. <laughs> you can't, it's all over now. But you could win a consolation prize of only being half a point behind. Now, actually, let's do what we did with the last time. So. I'm going to give you, you have to name the first six Mughal emperors and you're going to get half a point for each one you get up until you get a wrong one. Okay? Okay. Okay. Fair so enough. you could win. You, to draw okay. level, you have to do get three. Okay. More than three in a row and, yeah. and you've won. Okay. okay. Babur, Humayu, Akbar. <laughs> Do <laughs> you have to go in? The, so your level at the moment. This is this is nail biting stuff. All you need is one one do, more Mughal emperor. Do I have to go in sequence? Yeah, you have to go in sequence. Absolutely. You didn't say that. I I questioned you and I got this out of you, but you didn't mention it in the initial question. That's not how, how stuff works. This is okay. this is all recorded. We can go back and we can listen to me saying that you have to get an order. Okay, wait. I Where was I? Did. I was at Akbar, right? Yeah. Uh. So see, the sixth one is Aurangzeb. Okay, <laughs> that's <laughs> true. Who's before that? I'm just deciding Who's between that? the fourth and the fifth. The fifth one is Shah Jahan. Yes, that's correct. So who's the fourth so, one? So the fourth to win one. it all, the fourth one is. <laughs> this is to win it. This is to win it all. I'm going to give you <laughs> ten more seconds. <laughs> one second. I have actually forgotten who was the fourth one. I was kidding till now. But ten. One second. Nine. Uh, eight. Was here, seven. Was here. Who's left? Six, Who's left, guys? Five. <laughs> four. Three. Uh, wait, I two. Heard. Listen to one. me. One. Go on then. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> yeah, right, you've got it. Okay, I'm going to claim that as a victory. Um, yes, no, yes. Uh, we are, we are, you said that we had already no. equaled. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's a draw. That's a draw. Yeah. Everyone can walk away with their yes, dignity intact. Exactly. Okay. That's what I was aiming for. I didn't want to like answer it in. 
you know go ahead and make you feel bad on your own podcast <laughs> i wouldn't do that the answer was jangi though the, the answer was jangi thank you very much indeed divya for coming on the podcast thank you very much to our almost silent umpire in the background hacker um <laughs> we've all walked away with at least some of our dignity yeah that is true that's all for this episode and in fact that's all for the series thank you very much indeed for listening the next series is going to start in a couple of weeks and we're going to go back to having one episode a week rather than every fortnight if you've been enjoying these podcasts please consider donating to my wife's charity that's the snail sidu memorial fund the details are on the website and in the description of this podcast have a great week take care Can I laugh? Yeah, laughing welcome. <laughs> no, no I can't laugh. <laughs>